What do I need to be good at? To be great at something. Hello, everyone. You are listening to She Leads with Carly. And in this show, we talk to the absolute best, brightest, and yes, badass leaders. Tap into where your natural curiosity takes you. Just making sure you're not your own roadblock. Even if you do fall, you're going to fall and you're going to learn. Together, let's build a DNA of what it takes to rise to the top and truly make an impact. I'm your host, Carly Malatsky. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is the one and only Miriam Hart. Miriam is a 23-year-old engineer, innovator, speaker, and entrepreneur. While studying computer science at Stanford, Miriam has gained reputable skills within the fields of quantum computing, virtual reality, and augmented reality, even enabling her to be the youngest teacher at Stanford University at age 19, where she teaches a computer science class on virtual reality. As an entrepreneur, Miriam co-founded EZIT, a consumer goods app in South Africa. Beyond EZIT, Miriam has built numerous iOS-compatible apps, some of which she's won awards for, and most of which are geared towards underrepresented communities. She also served as a product engineer at a tech company called Uno, where she created a platform that allows students to research, collaborate, and publish articles to peer-reviewed journals. If that isn't enough... Miriam is the host of the Faking It podcast and also stars in the top 10 hit series, My Unorthodox Life on Netflix. Miriam, welcome to She Leads. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yes, of course. So typically how I love to get started is telling me about, you know, two-year-old, three-year-old Miriam talking about childhood. And I think what's especially interesting with you is that it's probably arguably the most different than where you are today, maybe. So tell me about your childhood, what that looked like for you. Okay, well, two-year-old, three-year-old me actually was in Atlanta because I was born there. So okay. yeah, so I, I lived there until I was six years old in a Jewish community. It was kind of ironic though, because we lived on a street called Christmas Street, Christmas Lane, I think was what it was. And so I remember thinking it was like, and in like in the Jewish community, in the Orthodox Jewish community, we didn't even say Christmas because you're not supposed to say Christ. So we'd say Xmas. Uh, and so I remember like saying the street name and feeling rebellious because we would say the actual street name. So it was just a street name and like being like, ooh, Christmas. <laughs> but, but anyways, that's a random side fact. But, but yeah, so I, I, grow, I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community. That's a big part of my identity. Um, I would say, because I lived in that community until I was 16. I moved to Muncie, New York, which is the largest ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in the U.S. when I was uh, like six years old. So I pretty much grew up there. But I apparently my mom told me I used to have a Southern accent. I didn't know that. But yeah, she would tell me stories where I would like climb up on counters and yell like, hey, help me, hey, help me, because I'd be stuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I guess I'd be out of that, unfortunately, because that would have been cool. Um, but yeah, what which I go into. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So growing up, so in this ultra Orthodox community, first of all, I have to say it's even fascinating to me because I'm Jewish and grew up, you know, Jewish, very traditional though, went to a Jewish day school from K through 12. And even the concept of, like you said, like not being able to say Christ and, you know, the, the street name that you lived on, like, this is all actually, I'm learning a lot. And it's fascinating to me because it's almost like different religions in a way. So to walk me through almost when you moved to Muncie 
being in an ultra orthodox community, what did that look like? What did school look like? How did you need to dress? What 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 does that look like? It's a very much an insular community. So in Muncie, it was really great for anyone who's an ultra orthodox Jew because you can go to pretty much any grocery store. You know, they have kosher glat. They have like like Wesley kosher. These are the names of all like the the different grocery stores. And then they have like Chai Pizza. And the, like these are actual names of the restaurants. They're like, I'm not making this up, you know. Uh, and so it's just this very, it's like this own world where you can go to any grocery store. You can go to any restaurant. You can go pretty much anywhere. You can go to any clothing store and they're going to have Tzniah's clothes, modest clothes. What I'm wearing right now is actually like super kosher, <laughs> super Tzniah's. It's like covering my collarbones, covering my elbow. It's to be honest, I just have a hickey on my neck. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that's the real reason. Okay. <laughs> I feel like I'm 17 years old. I was like, what the heck? Like, this is not okay. I'm I'm 23. Okay, but whatever. Anyways. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. I was going to um, ask. I was going to ask. I was like, yeah, you're really covered up there. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Anyway, good to know. Now we got you should be out, you know? Like, this is not yeah, my yeah. normal. This is, yeah. Anyways. <laughs> so that's why, that's why the Orthodox Jews wear modest clothing. They're covering up the hickeys, you know? No, it's not why. Um <laughs> But, but yeah, so it's really great if you're Orthodox Jewish because everybody there is like that. And so it's a very self-sufficient community. People work within the community. You have the doctors in the town. You have like the lawyers in the town, you know. And so growing up there, it was very homogenous. Everyone was like me. All my friends followed the same rules that I followed. We all went to the different shuls, synagogues. We all, you know, and we all had like our own lives there. I didn't know anybody. I was not friends with anyone outside of my community until I was like 15 years old, 16 years old, starting to peek into the outside world. And like the first time I became friends with a non-Jewish person was when I went, I would take a bus to New York City after school and go to a coding boot camp. Um, and so like that was the first time I became friends with non-Jewish people. And they were also like 35 and I was 16 years old doing like some like, like I don't remember, it was called like New York Code Academy or something like that. Um, so yeah, that was the first time ever in my entire life that I like was talking to non-Jewish people in the context of like, how are you? It's always been more, if I ever spoke to non-Jewish person, it'd be like, oh, here are my groceries. Like, can you check this out? Or, you know, it wasn't, it was never, it was more of like, uh, not as a friend. It was more just something. Transactional. It was transactional. Yeah. Exactly. So it was super homogenous. Yeah. That's like a great way to put it. Wow. Okay. So. I'm curious. So at 15, which we'll even get to that, right? Like how did you even discover coding and all of that? But before that, at what point, at what age did you even question, you know, this homogenous community and like what's happening and the difference of, you know, women to men in this community, because right. that's so rooted in religion in general. But yeah. at what point were you thinking like something is, is different or something I don't feel comfortable here. Something's, you know, off that I need to challenge. Yeah. Well, so the challenging bit came in from day one, I would say. My mom likes to say the story of like, she always says that I'm one of the reasons why she was able to leave the religion. And I always respond to that and say, well, I never would have left myself if not for her because she exposed me to the outside world. Um, and so we kind of like were there for each other in that way. But to give an example, like she always likes to say the story of when I was five years old, so I don't even remember saying the story, um, but she said that there's a rule in the community that you can't like play, girls can't really, it really depends. Also, this is another thing about Orthodox Judaism that I actually wanna say before I 
give any more examples is that it's like on a, it's like sexuality it's a spectrum you know you have like the ultra orthodox jews and you have the ultra ultra orthodox and you have the orthodox and you have the modern orthodox and you know and it's like really the spectrum of you some people have a tv in their home some people have internet some people don't have a tv some people don't have internet so i'm really just speaking from my personal experience and even my experience has changed throughout my life because at first my family didn't have a tv and then we got one you know when i was like 7 or something and so like even my family slowly became somewhat modern orthodox by the time i was 15 i was in a modern orthodox high school so because my mom left the community when i was like 13 years old she kind of brought my family slowly to be still orthodox but less less extreme uh and then so that's like that's another important like information that i was kind of like one on the spectrum myself i never was in one spot the entire time um, so I just want to put that out there. Uh, but yes, yeah, so the story goes that this was at a time where I was not allowed to play sports as a girl. So I was five years old. In my family, we believed that that was wrong. And so I remember challenging my father because I, even as a young kid, I wanted to play sports. And so I'd be like, why can't I play soccer? And then my father would say, well, it's not appropriate. A man might look at you and think bad thoughts and it's not appropriate. And then I said, what my response to him was, was, why is that my problem? Like, why does it matter if he has bad thoughts? Why, why should I care? So that's what I said. And my mom, like, in her head, she's like, yeah, you know, like, why is it her problem? And so apparently she never, like, thought that her, like, she felt that, but she never had the courage to say that, you know, to challenge. Right. But that's been me since day one of, like, being in this religion is just challenging, being like, okay, I understand that I can't do this, but why? Why is that my problem? Why can I do this? Why? And to also frame that, I still believed in the community. I still believed in the religion. I still believed in God. But it was more, I wanted to understand. I was like, okay, I get it. It says in, we, we pray every single morning in a door where men say, thank you, God, for not making me a woman. And women say, thank you, God, for making me as you wish. This is something that we say every day. And so it's, it's a fact that men are better than women in the community. I'm like, okay, I get it. Men are better than women. I understand. But why are they better than women? Can you just give me the reasons as to why? And so that's how I challenged it in the framework of the, of the religion. And I never questioned the religion itself, if that makes sense, because I believed in it. But I just wanted to know. I just wanted to understand. And so that's like the challenging side. Yeah. So you were always asking the why. It's it's almost like you understand it's there, but now let's like give me some fundamental reason why it's there. What is the the reasoning? That's amazing. And did were you able to get I mean, I think I can assume the answer, but were you able to get any satisfying answers or was it just a continual, you know, I'm I I don't have answers. I need to do something and probably that something is actually take myself out of the community. Uh, honestly, I don't know if I ever got like a satisfying answer. Like I remember in my eighth grade yearbook, they wrote me down as like most likely to be a feminist president or something like that. Like, <laughs> like, which is kind of offensive. Like that was a bad thing, you know, like being a feminist and the yeah. was like not a good thing. Um, but I was so obviously proud of that because I would always just obviously like just keep on pushing. And I don't think I ever, I don't remember ever being satisfied really because I didn't like dancing, yeah. you know, because at the end of the day, like, I think I was just dissatisfied with not being able to be myself. And so they couldn't really tell me anything that would satisfy it. Um, but I still like asked anyways, because I was like, please, I hope there is something out there. There is a re reason out there. Or maybe yeah. deep down, I really just wanted them to like question themselves too, like make my teachers question and, and have them be like, hmm, I don't know. Like, I think maybe that was my actual goal, like us to come to the conclusion that this actually doesn't make sense. Um, but that never happened. 
So right, <laughs> you're almost trying to. You're almost, you know, the only one that wasn't afraid necessarily to to voice it out loud. And probably others were thinking the same things, but you were just like the one that was saying, you know what, I I'm gonna put this into the to, into the universe. I'm gonna you know have this be out loud, and then and then let's see what others are saying and if it's actually true that others are questioning it too. Anyway, and I remember my friends being like, Mary, I'm just accept it. Like I remember my friends being like, you're wow. annoying. Stop asking these questions. Like this is the way wow. it is. Like I remember that being like something a rhetoric too. Yeah. And it's also, it's not shocking to me to have that response either, because oftentimes being part of a community is very special, right? And having that ability to feel comfortable and be as one is is also something that people strive to be in. Yeah. So in a way I can understand why people are like, this comfort is, is very, it's very nice. Right. It's very safe. Yeah. And I don't want someone that's coming in and challenging that and, and is, you know, breaking away from that comfort that's that that we have so anyway that that's something that I've no yeah also it just hurts like like for example I have, I have a friend from my community her name is Liba and I remember when we were in ninth grade I asked her what she wants to do when she's older and she said that if she could be whoever she wants to be she'd want to be a lawyer she knows she'll be super good at it wow. and then I was like oh my gosh amazing you should do that and she was like obviously I'm not going to do that I'm going to get married and like right now today she has two children already um, and so, and then I remember her getting frustrated at me, like, Mary, I'm like, don't tell me to do that. Obviously I can't do that. And so I think it's also like wow. this like idea that it's hard to go there. It's hard to like, question these things because you know, it's not going to get anywhere. And then it just hurts because wow. you know that you can't live the life that you want to live. Um, and so, yeah, so I think that's also a part of it too. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's insane. That's incredible. So tell me now around 13, I believe is when you discovered, you know, YouTube coding, or at least what was going through your mind at this point when you discovered this whole new world? How did you discover it? How were you first introduced? So my brother got a computer when I think I was like 11, actually. Um, yeah, but I started coding on it when I was 13. So I got, he got this computer and this was like the first time that there was a computer in the house, which is really amazing and fantastic. Uh, and yeah. so I made a deal with him that I would do his math homework if he lets me use his computer. And he said, okay. <laughs> and so, I love this story. This is great. Then I ended up like, as also another thing, as a girl in this community, if you're not into gossiping, I'm like not a gossiper at all. Ask any of my friends. I like, for some reason, just don't like doing it. I don't, I get bored of talking about other people. Um, yeah. And that's what you do as a, as a kid, as a girl in this community, because there's nothing else to do. You just sit with your friends. There's nothing to really talk about except people, you know, like literally what would we be talking about? Um, and so because we're not watching anything, we're not like reading magazines, we're literally just doing studying Torah. And so we're not going to talk about the Torah because we have to do that for school. So there's nothing to talk about except other people. And so as a girl in this community, since you can't do anything outside of studying Torah, we just talk. And I did not like that. So I would get, I was bored. I was a very bored child. I just had nothing to do. I had nothing to do. I would wow. go outside. There's a little, I got, there's a little forest in my backyard. And so I would just spend all my time climbing trees in this forest, finding random pieces of me and wondering what it is. And like, I was one of those like oh my God, dirty, yeah, that. coming home super dirty, you know, like that, that was what I did as a child. I would like run around my community, like finding trees to climb. Um, <laughs> literally. And so when my brother got this computer, this is like the best thing ever. Cause it was like a toy for me to play with. I was like, yes. And so, um, at first I didn't even go on the internet. Cause like, I didn't know if I was allowed to. 
and I would just spend time on Microsoft Word. And I know that sounds so crazy, but Microsoft Word, you can still like semi-design. I use like clip art to design things. I like created like logos for a, a made a band called like the All-Star Band. It was like me and my two friends that I bossed around and like they would do whatever I said. It was great. Um, and so, yeah, so I like was just playing on this computer. I learned how to use iMovies. So I started making videos. And then eventually I like asked my mom if I could go on the internet. She said, yes. And that's when I like discovered YouTube uh, and YouTube was for sure like the most, the biggest, one of the most pivotal moments in my life was discovering that because that's when I really started to learn things uh, outside of like religion. So I literally would type in how to hit the space bar and go through the letters in the alphabet. So I'm not joking. Like I would type in A and then see what comes up. I would type in B, break dancing came up. And I was like, oh my gosh, let me learn how to break dance. So cool. And so like fifth grade me, as like an 11 year old, I had this break dancing phase for like three months where I would learn how to do the helicopter and like different poses. Like I still remember how to do everything that I learned. My mom hated this phase because I had like bruised shoulders consistently for like three months, you know, and I, it was just, and I like learned magic tricks, like card tricks off of YouTube. I still have all, like now these are all party tricks that I have like in the back, you know? Yeah. No, for, I was going to say like, this is just this alone. It's so telling of your natural curiosity, right? Like this is who you are. And I'm sure this was, it, and it, it's like you said, from age five and younger, even you had this natural curiosity to ask the why and to now, you know, discover this whole world of YouTube and having this at your fingertips. I'm, I'm so curious, even before the coding at this point were your friends also, did they have access to technology? Did they know you were doing this online? Did you, were you teaching them right. about this whole world or how was that going on? It was a mix. It was like, there's some kids in my class who did. Um, okay. Cause I remember when we were like, 13 years old, I would Gmail message my friends when I'd get home from school. Yeah. Uh, and so that means that we all had access to the internet, most of us. So I would say most of us did have computer access. Yeah. Got it. Okay. At that point. But that was when I was actually in a more, at age 13, I switched to less ultra, ultra, and now just like, yep, ultra. Like we were not talk to boys, but some people did and they weren't allowed to. But like, even in the school I went to before that, nobody talked to boys. Like, even like, it just, you wouldn't do that. Yeah. So, so yeah, so it was like a little less um, at it. that point. Okay, so then and so then you discover the whole world of coding and developing apps. How did that happen? So that happened because it was literally off of YouTube. I typed it. So it was actually my dad who came up with the idea. So I need to give him credit for this. Um, my dad was like, "Why don't you make an app?" And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> it was literally like just like that. It was like just a conversation. My dad has yeah. always been like. It's interesting because he. He did become, he was on the spectrum too. And he always wanted to be a supportive father, but he was just trying to do that within the confines of the community, within the rules, you know, because he believed in everything. Right. And so, like, I like just like hearing him say that he doesn't let me play sports, I know that that didn't come from a, a space of like, I don't want you to do what you want to do. It was more like, I want you to, to practice this religion and be the best person you can be. And that means that this isn't good for you. Um, and so it's really complicated in the sense on like, how it's a religion in general is a systematic, like it could be a systematic problem when it hits fundamentalism because there's no like bad players in this, you know, like men who tell their wives that they can't leave their house, as much as we want to say they're bad people, it's systematic. It's like this, this like system that's saying that men should do that, you know, and that's the right thing to right. do. And that's so they really aren't right. bad people. It's just like, it's very systematic. Um, so that's yeah. really important to know too. And so, so yeah, so it was my dad's idea. He's like, why don't you make an app? Because at this point he knew I loved computers and I didn't even know what coding was. Uh, like I genuinely 
did not know what engineering, I, I didn't know what Python was. I didn't know how people make things. I never thought about it. I never knew anybody who did any of those things. So I did like what I did for everything else, like how I learned origami and break dancing and playing guitar. I, I went to YouTube and I typed in how to make an app. Uh, and then there's, I clicked on the first video. I typed in how to make an app for an iPhone. That's what I did because I had like an iPod touch. Yeah. Um, and so the, the first video came up. It was like a tutorial on downloading Xcode. And then I was just following along with this video. I never learned Objective-C. This is when it was an Objective-C. There's no Swift yet either. Objective-C, if anybody knows, it's like a way harder language than Swift too. It's like way more confusing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so there's like type in hello world, like funk, you know, like like the whole thing, like console.log, but parentheses, hello world. I'm like doing all this. I'm like, why am I writing hello world? Like, I don't know, but like, let me just continue this video. And so, yeah, so I, I pretty much made the first app through watching YouTube videos. And I felt like the biggest imposter ever because once the app got onto the app store, I genuinely didn't understand the code still. Like it was through trial and error, through brute force of me just following YouTube videos and like typing in functions that I watched on a YouTube video and like doing it until it like would compile by like guessing like, I think this needs up like a semicolon by the end of it because all the other ones have semicolons. I'm assuming that's what I have to do. And like just like literally not understanding my own code and then putting it on the app store and then people being like, wow, you're such like a whiz coder. And me being like, only if you only knew, I actually don't know shit about coding. <laughs> so yeah, that was wow. the first app that I made. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. And what did, what did your first app do? What, what was it? It was for my school. So it just had like okay. calendars and schedules and directions and like, yeah, and like the yeah. lunch menu. And I could, I could definitely relate. So I, this was actually, I was much later than you. I learned how to code after Stanford, graduating in a boot camp, And it's very much, it's so new. There's so many new aspects to it that I agree with you. And in, in some way, it's very much just like looking at words and just like looking at a patterns and seeing, okay, what do I need to do? And then almost backtracking and being like, oh, this is what caused this. And this is why we do this. So anyway, that that's, that's incredible. That's fascinating. What did you learn now reflecting on your almost like that whole journey of YouTube? What have you learned almost about the power of education or just like having this accessibility for everyone? How do you view it now? How do you see the power of it? Well, I think to me, like I have a talk called the superpower of technology, like that is technology. And it's really because I, the internet is just this like free resource for anybody to learn anything. And I think that when I first had access to the internet, that was my initial like idea was to use it for education because I had no education outside of like like Jewish educa- education up until that point. So I was excited for that. But I think right now in our society, people don't see technology as that tool. You know, we see it more as a tool for social media. We see right. it as a tool for connecting to each other, but we don't see it as a tool to learn, build and gain knowledge. And so that's like what the message that I try to preach a lot is that no, like if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, I know this sounds so crazy, but if you have your own startup and you need to learn some legal jargon, like you can do that off of the internet. You know, you can like figure out what is standard. You can learn like how to do your taxes. You can learn just like so much off of the internet, how to code, how to like just anything. And I think that we yeah. don't know that. We haven't internalized that as like a society for the most part. We mostly just use it as a tool to like like see people, connect people, watch, stream, things like that. But it's really just this incredible access to education and 
thereby empowerment, you know, and thereby independence, because the more you know, the more you can do and the more you can um, live the life that you want to live. So yeah, 100%. And then it's even fascinating because we probably see, you know, being in, you know, Silicon Valley in this area, we see now like OpenAI and ChatGPT and and all this new technology that's running so fast. And we see that like at your fingertips that anyone has access to. And yet there's probably a, such a big part of the population who don't even know that they have access to it. So anyway, I agree with you. It's so powerful. So Miriam, at this point in your life, you know, around 15, 16 years old, most of your friends are probably thinking, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of it is, you know, get married at around young 20s, start having kids, start building a family. That's kind of the track that they're imagining for their life. How are you thinking of it? And even more so, when did college become this, like, I need to go to college? Um. So, I mean... It was weird because I remember like growing up in the community and still just not wanting to one change my last name ever. So I was like, I don't want okay. to change my last name. And then and actually I did end up changing my my original last name is Hensler. That's my dad's last name. Uh, and then I changed it to Hart. Hart also, by the way, is made up. It's like a completely fabricated name. My mom made it up when she left the community. Uh, and so I wow. too. Yeah. So um, I changed it to that because it's like, a, it's awesome. It's an awesome name and it represents yeah. like freedom to me. Um, but, I love that. Yeah. But at like 15, 16. So there were like, like there's seminaries that girls go to straight out of. So it's like, this is like the track. It's after high school, you go to seminary for one year in Israel. Um, and that's usually where people get like super indoctrinated with their religion too. They're like, super cut off from, they like don't have phones. Like they just like, they're taught the the amuna, the like real deep belief um, in hashkafa and like the reasons as to why you should just like believe in, in religion and things like that. Um, and so I, I think I did want to go to, I don't know if I want, I don't remember, but I remember not wanting to get married after that right away. I remember wanting to like wait, which was still like pretty rebellious, but I remember like always feeling that way. Um, and so I guess I wanted to do that. And my goal was to go to RCC, which was a community, Rockland Community College. It was a community college in Muncie. And so like, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to RCC for two years and then try to transfer to NYU. That was like what I wanted to do. And that was like, yeah, like to me in the community, I was like, this is like a big deal. Like I'm going to try to get good grades at RCC and then transfer to like a really great college in New York City. Like that's my plan. That's what I want to do. Um, and that was like very bold, you know, a very bold thing to do in the community, especially as a girl. Um, but I remember when I was 15, at this point, my mom has left the community already. She's not religious. She like, so I'm, I switched at that, that year as a 15 year old, I switched to a modern Orthodox high school. So now I go to a high school that has sports teams. So like girls there, some of them go to like college, none of them really go to university, but they go to like Jewish college, like Stern in New York city is like the Yeshiva university, the woman's side of Yeshiva university. Um, and I remember my mom saying, to, we had a college guidance counselor. And my mom said to the college guidance counselor, how, how can Miriam, can Miriam, like, how can Miriam get into Stanford? So my mom says this to the college guidance counselor and I look at her and I'm like, what are you saying? Like, <laughs> I literally am a B student. Like, <laughs> I'm always, wow, a B student. Yeah. what, you know, like I haven't even taken the SAT and I'm in 11th grade. Like, 
what are you saying? Like, it's impossible. Stanford's like the best school in the world. Like, what? So I look at her and I'm pissed. I'm genuinely like angry at her because I'm like, if you want me to go to Stanford, why didn't you put me into a better school? You know, like that was what was in my head. Like, if you want me to go right. here, why didn't you like make me work hard? You know, or like, well, like I was upset. I was like, you can't expect me yeah. to go to school coming from where I came from, barely knowing how to write an essay. Like, you can't. Like where, who are, who do you think you are? You know, like, and, and that was the first time you had heard it from her. Like yeah. before she had never said to you, like, you can go to Stanford. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And because she wow. changed herself because she, for the first time thought herself that like, oh, my daughter should go to Stanford, you know, like, um, and so, so yeah. So I remember being super pissed at her and being like saying to the college guys, don't listen to her. How do I get into NYU from transferring from RCC? You know, like, tell me that, like, what do I need for that? Um, so yeah, so I was actually like legitimately pissed at my mom. And that's actually, I was curious to know even how you were as a student, but you said like, as you would imagine, B student, you know, not knowing how to write an essay, probably most of your excited learning is coming from your own personal YouTube discoveries. Right. So then when did that, when did that almost become a reality or at least your own dream? Because I know you, it shifted to you to be like, I want to go to Stanford. Right, right. So yeah, so then the way that I decided I wanted to go to Stanford and once that happened was once I stopped being religious uh, and I moved to San Francisco. So that was when I was 15 when that happened with my mom and that was in 11th grade. And then a couple months later is when my mom took me with her to Paris and I was exposed to the outside world and I started questioning my religion uh, and once that happened, that's when I left the community and I skipped 12th grade, moved to San Francisco, went to a computer science college. And once I was there, I decided, well, the agreement I made with my mom, actually, it's really my mom. She like was really, she pushed me a lot. She said, I'll let you do yeah. all this crazy. She, this is her wording. She's like, I'll let you do all this crazy shit if you go to Stanford. Um, and I said, okay, I can't promise I'll go to Stanford, but I can promise that I'll try. And so, Yeah. And what did, what did she mean by all this crazy shit? What were you doing? So, so I wanted, so I did this computer science. So I, okay. So when I was 16, I went on this like six month journey of breaking out of the religion. It was once, um, all my 16th birthday, my mom took me with her to Paris. And so that was like the start of me seeing the, that was the first time I ever left the country. Uh, so it was the start of me just being exposed to like the outside world and just being there with her was the first time that I ever questioned the religion in my life. Like I always challenged it, but I never questioned it. So that's like the difference. I grew up challenging it, but I never questioned its like fundamental truth until I went to Paris with my mom. And the way that I questioned it was I asked her to explain to me how what she's doing is okay because she wasn't religious. And we we're at a restaurant. She was eating. We we're at a raclette restaurant. I'm not sure if you know what raclette is. It's like melted cheese and I've before heard. you've heard of it yeah yeah so we're at a reclet restaurant and i'm keeping like full kosher at this point so i bought like bread from like a kosher supermarket in the in the jewish district the limare i think it's what it's called uh and so every restaurant that we're going to i have like my little bag of like a baguette you know and i'm just like it's stale at this point i'm just like eating this like raw bread and like lettuce like they're bringing me lettuce and you know like it's terrible and my mom is making these moaning noises she's like putting melted cheese on pork and like like oh my god this is so good yum yum and this is like the third restaurant i went to with her and i'm just like this fucking sucks you know this is terrible and so yeah I remember I'm just hangry at this point. And so I ask her like how what she's doing is okay. And so she gives me her little talk, her spiel um, as to like what, how it's okay what she's doing. And it made sense to me um, what she said. And so that was like, hmm, like it made me think. And so that just this like six month journey of of really questioning everything and discovering for myself what is true. 
Uh, and so once I decided that none of it's true, I had my fuck it moment. My fuck it moment was when I ditched school and I, uh, my mom wrote me a little letter I, with permission from my mom to ditch school. Um, went to New York City because she was in the city at that time. And I just like, hung out with her. I walked to the nearest Burger King, which was in a subway station. It was like a Burger King X Cinnabon. Uh, and I walking in, by the way, is like already blasphemy from like where I came from. I remember in ninth grade, my teacher saying that unless you're dying or somebody you're with is dying, do not go into McDonald's. Like, don't even get water from McDonald's. Like, don't go there. You know, like it's just gluttonous. Wow. Yeah. It's just everything wrong with American society. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I walked in feeling like already like a huge rebel. And then I ordered a cheeseburger, which is like the biggest sin in the world. And then French fries. <laughs> Yeah. And then I like took a photo of the cheeseburger and then I stared at it for like probably five minutes. Then I took one bite and I ate one French fry and then I ate another French fry because it tasted good. And then I threw it, I threw it out and I walked away and that was like my fucking moment. Wow. Yeah. It, it's almost like we're talking about it now, right? Which makes it seem okay. Like she left her community and that was it. But in reality, like actually walking into that McDonald's or Burger King or wherever you ended up going, eating a cheeseburger, it's actually like it's a there's something there's a fundamental thing going on inside of you also that is like, you know, an identity fuck, uh, uh, like however you want to talk about it. But for you, what was that like? What was the scariest part for you that like psychologically was really so like it, it almost just it ate you up inside, but maybe there wasn't, but what was something that really made it tricky or hard? No, I think it, it wasn't even like, I was scared. I think like, wait, I'm trying to remember. Oh yeah. So the first time I broke a rule was in Paris. I turned, there was um, in like the hotel that me and my mom were staying at. This was after she like gave me her spiel and I started questioning things. Um, there was like in the, we were by the pool area and I wanted to take a shower after and then, but to turn the shower on, you had to hit a button. And in like Orthodox Judaism, you're not allowed to use electricity on, it was on a Saturday. Right. Uh, and so I was like, whatever, I'm just going to hit this button. And I hit that button and I remember doing that and being scared that something was going to happen and then nothing happened and just being like, oh, okay. Like I'm just showering. Wow. Interesting. That's weird. Uh, and so that was like the only time where when I broke a rule, I felt fear of like breaking the rule, like uh, in like immediate fear that like something bad's going to happen. Yeah. After that, I realized like, okay, I guess nothing's going to happen when I break these rules. But what that wasn't really what scared me about doing all this. But what the hardest part about doing all this was admitting to myself that my life was a lie. That mm. I to myself that every single time that I refrained from doing something, every single time that I felt guilty about wearing my skirt too high, you know, or pulling grass off of the ground on a Saturday, because that's like another rule that you're not allowed to do. Or every time that I felt guilt or righteousness where I felt like, oh, proud of myself for doing the right thing. Every time any of this, any moral value was put into question or I, I upheld a moral value or anything like that is now to me meaningless. If I eat this cheeseburger, I'm admitting to myself that none of that actually mattered that my life is a lie, that I'm literally Truman on the Truman Show. You know, like yeah. that's that was what's so scary. Just saying that all that was for nothing. Wow. That was the scariest part. Uh, and so that's what I really struggled with, just saying that none of this mattered anymore and having to start over. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah, that was the hardest part. Wow, that's incredible. And I have to say, obviously, like my knowledge of your mom, of Julia, is from your, your Netflix show. And But I have to say, like her power and independence and ability to question and, and then also take action from it 
obviously, you know, was able to inspire, influence you in, in a great positive way and give you that strength. So, so I think that that's actually, it's incredible to, to have that, that person in your life who was able to be there in that sense. So, so, okay. Now, now you almost see like Stanford is a possibility. I'm going to try, try my hardest for this. What did that look like? How, how were you able to turn that around? Yeah. So, so yeah. So when I had this fucking moment, I decided, okay, I'm saying fuck it to the religion. What else am I saying fuck it to? You know, what else in my life? Actually, that's literally like it. where my head went, you know? Uh, and so first it went to like my group of friends at the time. I was like, these people, they're not good friends, you know? They don't lift me up. They don't encourage me to be myself. Uh, and so I said, fuck it to my friends. And then I was like, okay, what else, you know? And then at that point I was like 16 years old and I haven't really gotten into coding as much either. Um, until like from ages 13 to 16, I wasn't really, cause I got sucked into being a teenager and like wanting to be cool and like all of that. And so I wasn't really coding or anything. So then I thought about what makes me happy. And I remember coding, coding is something that I like to do. I want to continue doing that. And so that's when I decided to apply to a coding camp in San Francisco. And so I applied to this coding school, it's called Make School. And um, they, you know, you had to have all these prerequisites, like these computer science classes, you had to like know all these things. I didn't know shit at the time. And so I applied, I pretended, I'm like, yep, I took a computer science class. Yes, I know how to do all these things. Uh, and then I had an interview, I remember I got an interview with it and they're asking me like, like, okay, what is an object? I like did not know what an object was, even though I built an app. And so I remember Googling as I'm talking to these people, like stalling and then Googling what is an object and then saying what Google said. Uh, and so I got in. <laughs> <laughs> I got into the I love it. Yeah, I got it. And that's when I like joined the, so I was 16 when I joined that coding school in, Tim, in New York City. So I was like, okay, yeah. now I need to know something when I get there. Cause I told them I know all these things. So that's when I like joined that when I was like taking the bus to New York City after school. Um, yeah. So went to San Francisco and once I got there, I didn't want to leave. It was like the first time I ever was in a space where I was becoming friends with non-Jewish people. I became friends with a Christian person. Whoa. Got boys, you know, like all that sounds so normal, but it was like my first everything. And then I decided that I didn't want to leave. And, like, and that's when I got into their college program, Make School Product College. And I asked my mom if I can stay. And she said, okay, if you go to Stanford. And then I stayed. Um, and you had to be 18. You had to have graduated high school to go. I was just, I was going to 12th grade at the time, but I made an agreement with the yeah. school that if I, I get my diploma while I'm there, they'll let me stay. And they knew me too, because I did their summer program and they were like, okay, like I, I won their like two awards after the summer for building like apps or whatever. So like, like you, you can see. Wow. Um, and so I guess once I was there, I like realized that maybe I can't get in because of my grades, because I'm still a B student, but now at least I have a story, you know, and hopefully that could get me into Stanford. And I think that is what got me into Stanford, you know, is, is my story. And so, so, yeah. And then also I need to get a good like SAT score. And I remember... I studied for like two years, every single day I spent two to three hours studying for like the SAT because my score was a 15. Like I took the test, it was literally a 15 out of 36, which is four points below the national average, which is like, that's pretty bad, you know, it's, it's really bad. <laughs> it's like the national average, you know, it's not very good. Um, so yeah, so I had to just learn basic, like I never took geometry ever my entire life and you have to know geometry for these tests and so I had to just take a class on geometry I had to learn grammar I never learned grammar I didn't know what a like a preposition was like I just had to start from scratch yeah. uh and so wow that's incredible I think what's so fascinating is 
it's so easy to forget that this actually, you're 23. You know, this wasn't a long time ago. This was maybe five, five, six years ago, even less. So I think that's absolutely incredible. And then Miriam, before we even, before we get to, I want to talk a little bit, obviously about your Netflix show, your podcast, but at what point did you actually realize that beyond building an app, you could actually, you know, be an entrepreneur and start something on your own and what the world of entrepreneurship looked like? Where, where was your first taste of that? So I think at make school, they're very into like teaching us about entrepreneurship. Um, and I remember at, when I was 17, I was in make school and we had like this entrepreneur class and I just like did not pay attention to it at all. Cause I, I was like, I'm not going to be an entrepreneur. Like I don't care about this stuff. Um, and it's more, I think it was really because I was never encouraged or like nobody ever said to me that I can be an entrepreneur, that I could start my own company. And already like being an app developer to me was like so rebellious, so crazy, so like cool that like being an entrepreneur like seemed out of my, out of my like adjacent possible. Like I didn't think it was possible for me to do that at that time. Um, So I think like that's where I was starting at. And just being in San Francisco, being around people who are starting their own companies, going to Stanford, you know, um, building apps for people and just like eventually realizing that, oh, like, I guess I can do this too, is kind of how it happened for me. Like, oh yeah, like I can build apps and I can also make them profitable and like start companies around them. Um, And so so I think that's like how it happened just by being in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I love it. And I can definitely, I can understand that. I think being at Stanford, the energy there is is unlike anything you really see. And you know, and you just like, you feel the energy of people wanting to make a bigger impact than their individual selves and what they're, you know, going to class and whatnot. Class is almost like a, a side project in a way. And what they're actually doing is, you know, bigger. So I love that. So I would love to know how, I think your mom, Julia, was was almost the force behind it, but how did this whole, tell me a little bit about your Netflix show, My Unorthodox Life, Obviously it is, it's done incredibly well. One of the top 10 shows on Netflix and I I've seen it and I love it. I think what's so amazing about it is, and yes, it's a reality show, but still I feel like there's a difference of like being really authentic and in reality show. And then there's still like, you know, maybe some things are fabricated and whatnot with you guys. It feels so authentic and it feels so great. And I'm really getting to know, you know, your family, what you guys went through. It's truly incredible. So Tell me a little bit about it and how that how that process has been for you. Yeah, so it's been I remember when I was like, you know, 17 actually hearing my mom trying to make the show happen. So she okay. is the mind, you know, the brains behind my Orthodox life. She's like really thought of this for a long time. It took three years for her like of like dev, you know, to make it happen. Um, but she wanted to create this TV show to share my family's story. And she thought it'd be really impactful, really great. Uh, but it was always something that each member of my family, we got to think about for ourselves if it, if it was something that we wanted to do. So I remember my mom coming to us and saying, like, I want to do this. You get to decide if you want to be a part of it or not. So think about it. Uh, and so I had really three years to think about whether or not, like, I didn't know if it was for sure going to happen, but I still, I'm like, if let's say this is a reality, do I want to partake? You know, do I want to be a part of this? And so I really went through, I had three years to think about and decide if I want to do it. I decide, I, in the end, obviously decided that I want to be on the show. Um, and I was able to just like really face all the pros and cons of doing that uh, and feel like comfort and calmness with all of it, which is really good. And I think the reason why right now I'm okay with like all the pros and cons that come with being on the show is because I had that time to really think about it. Um, right. But yeah, so my mom made it happen and then my family did it. Yeah. I mean, like, so it was all her. 
And what was it like, you know, take, take me through almost a day in the life where you are filming, people are, cameras are there and you have to try act natural while there are cameras. Like what does that process look like? I have no idea. Yeah. So I would say season one and two for me felt very different because season one was like, obviously the first season I was like trying to, you know, look my best, act my best, be my best. It's hard to like be natural when it's your first time having cameras on you, wearing a microphone like 24 seven. I remember I was reading Jessica Simpson's memoir recently and she talks about how she because she was on a reality tv show like on MTV or something like early in the early days uh and she was saying how the microphone would like burn her skin because she'd be wearing it for so long and I was like I know what that feels like (laughs) you know like that it happens to me too and so it's just like a, a very unique experience you know like very not that many people can probably understand what it's like to be on a reality tv show um unless you're on one but, but yeah, so it was very interesting. It's hard. It was hard at first to act natural. I only really started forgetting the cameras were there, like by season two. I think all of season one, I was mostly aware that they were there. Um, unless I like drink a fair yeah. amount of alcohol, then you don't think you like forget about it, <laughs> which yeah. sometimes I would. So then it, <laughs> and then it just becomes like season two. It's almost just like, okay, yeah, they're there, but you don't even, it's almost like their background. You don't even notice them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You don't even notice them. You're so used to it. You get so used to it. I, yeah, like season two, I was so comfortable. Season one, like to give like more context, it took, like we had hair and makeup every, t- every day for filming. And I would probably spend like, 45 minutes with hair and makeup in season one every day them doing things I had like eyelash extensions I was like super into how I looked right season two I had a rule that it can't take more than 15 minutes oh wow so whatever they can do in 15 minutes that's what that, <laughs> that's what it is you know like, I didn't care as much I wasn't wearing eyelash extensions I was just more me like that's like really the truth yeah just more myself uh and so I, love that. I just got comfortable because the way I look at I looked at it is that like season one I felt like I was sprinting every single day, like trying to be my best self every single day. And that's not, it's like not- um, It's exhausting. Yeah, there's no longevity there. And so that's what like, it's a marathon, you know? So like season two to me was more of a marathon. Like, let me just like take it slow. Let me like not have to act every day. Let me just be myself and have that show off. And season one, I was also myself, but I still was like hyper myself. I was like, I was in an interview. I felt like the entire time, you know? Um, yeah. So that's like the difference. I just like cared less. And it, it doesn't even when you watch the show, it doesn't like you don't see a difference really, you know? And so, yeah, um, I think that makes sense. Yeah, that's what it's like. You get into your head a little bit, you get nervous. And then after the show comes out and you're like, oh, this one scene that I was so hyper fixated on, so scared that people would like judge me for or like care about nobody said anything. So then I realized that nothing actually matters. It all doesn't matter. And, and so that like gave me a lot of after going through the first season. And even beyond that, you've gotten a lot of messages, Instagram DMs of people who are, you know, in a similar position as you or who were, you know, in the ultra orthodox community, wanting to break free, talking about their sexuality, wanting to come out. How was that like? What was that like for you? That was the most validating thing that like could have ever happened from the show. 100%. I I still do read almost all of my DMs. Like I try to read all of them. And I really say to myself, like when people ask me, how do you handle hate? You know, and I still do get hate all the time. And to me, the way I handle it is that as long as I get one positive message from a person for everything that I do, just one, and that so far that's been the case, I've always gotten at least one message, I'm good because I do value that one person. I do think that if I like impact somebody positively one time for every single thing that I do, then it's worth it. 
you know, then I can get all the hate. If it's 99% hate, okay. But if there's one person that cared, that could have been me. You know, I could have been that one person and that matters to me. And so those messages that I get from people means they mean the world to me. That means that like, I'm doing this for a reason, you know, like this is why I'm like putting myself out there so I can help people yeah. that they're not alone, that they can be who they want to be. And, and that's really everything to me. Yeah, it's incredible because you're able to also do it at this large scale. That's what it gives you, that ability to say, look, I can impact people at a large scale and really tell my story and then have them relate, which is amazing. So yeah. tell me about this podcast. You have the Faking It podcast. What's it about? How's that journey been? And what's your what's your main goal? Yeah. Yeah. So I've been doing, because of the TV show, I went from like 2,000 followers on Instagram to 200,000 in like the span of a month, you know? And so I started having this platform and I would post on social media and just like engage with my audience, talk about like female empowerment, talk about my sexuality, uh, all sorts of things. And I personally, pre-television show, was not active at all on any social media platform. People knew me as someone who like is super hard to access because I always keep my phone on do not disturb. I had like an iPhone mini, like the screen was broken, the camera barely worked. Like I wasn't a phone person. I was never on my phone. I was very much an in-person person. Uh, and so I still am like that, but now I like am totally am on social media all the time. I'm using my phone all the time because to me, it's more like work. Uh, that's why I do it. But I still like never liked being on my phone. I still don't like social media. And I know it sounds so crazy, but I just don't. I just don't enjoy it. I don't like having to like share, con like I don't like having to pull my phone out all the time. I like being in the moment. Uh, and so, but I still was doing it because of like all those reasons of like wanting to engage and everything like that. Uh, and also it's a way to make money, which is great. Um, so that's kind of how the podcast came to be because I like having conversations like this long form conversations with people about very interesting, sometimes controversial, introspective topics. Uh, and it's hard to really get those messages across on TikTok, on like Instagram reels and stories. And so because I'm trying to engage with my audience, I thought that starting a podcast is a really great way for me to talk about the things that I want to talk about in an authentic way. And so that's how faking it came to be, was me wanting to do that. Uh, and that's exactly what it is. So I, what I naturally talk about all the time is just female empowerment, female issues and, you know, struggles and just everything in that realm. And then also just random other topics too about, you know, like politics or philosophy or finance or anything that like I find to be interesting this podcast, as much as it's for other people, it's also for me to just have really interesting conversations with people and then just share it with the world. Yeah. Um, and so that's what it is. Uh, yeah. I love that's it. Kind of, yeah. I love it. And, and, and it's very much, it's very authentic to you. It's very natural. Your voice is coming through. I love it. It's really great. And it's so valuable. So perfect. So speaking of, you know, con contrary opinions, I would love to know what is your most, most contrarian opinion that you have? Okay, here, here, here's like, I feel like you, so I remember you like talked to you, asked me this question and I feel like I had an answer. I don't remember what it was, but now I have what came, to, what came to mind just now. And I think this is contrarian in our society today. Okay. Uh, is that I believe that it is okay to be friends with anyone despite their own beliefs, their own like political beliefs, despite their own, you know, religious beliefs despite anything. And so that means that I'm okay with being friends with a Trump supporter. I'm okay with being friends with somebody who may be somewhat sexist. And this sounds insane, even anti-Semitic. And I, this sounds crazy, you know, like absolutely crazy. But to me, 
Uh, I think it is so important to understand people and to not judge someone based on their own beliefs. And the reason I feel this way is because if I didn't feel this way, that means that I would not be able to be friends with my past self, you know, and I would be judging my past self because when I was 12 years old, the person that I was was someone who was super religious, who even though I didn't like that men were better than women, I still had to believe that, you know, Um, and so like, I can't judge myself for having those values because I was told from everyone around me that that's what that's what truth is. I was told from my parents, from my community, from my elders, from the news that I read, everywhere, everything that I was exposed to. So how can I judge myself from having certain ideas when that's all that I've been told from everyone around me? And so because of that, I have that empathy for other people too. I know that that if you're born in Hicksville in the middle of nowhere America, you know, and everyone around you is telling you that Trump is like the greatest man in the world only saying positive things not bringing up one negative thing about him we all know even in tech that echo chambers are real that you can go on facebook and only see validating ideas you know that uh, agree with your community's values how can i judge you i can't there's nothing inside me that is okay with not wanting to understand that person and judge them and I believe on really judging people based on their characters, not based on where they came from uh, and their and their values. And so if somebody has a good character and they treat other people with respect, I'm open to having a conversation with you. And I think the best way to get through to somebody is by having those hard conversations. And so just because somebody disagrees with me, that for me, that's more of a reason to befriend them and try to get to know them better. And so no. that's a very good idea. Yeah. No, I, I love that. I really, really love that. I think what becomes so, what becomes challenging in that though, is that that last part of what you said of like, you know, your character being able to have like this healthy conversation. I want to learn where you come from. I want to learn why you believe this. I want to, you know, being able to have that mentality though is really, I, unfortunately, I don't think we see it enough, right? I don't think we see it enough where I'm able to, where people are able to say, you know, I hear your opinion. I I'm curious about it. I want to know more about it. And then I can give you mine and we could talk about it in a very healthy, you know, exciting way because having difference of thought, it's not a negative. Like it's so it's viewed often as such this, that's why we're very divisive as a, you know, population. But once we are able to actually sit down and talk in such a accepting, tolerant way, I think that there are like so many more strides of progress can happen. But anyway, I, I really, I really love that. Miriam, what, what is your superpower? Um, my superpower. Okay, let's see. I feel like there's two things. So one <laughs> is, okay, and this aligns with like kind of what I just said about like that idea of, I think people have said to me recently a lot that they don't feel, they feel like they can say anything to me. Uh, They feel comfortable around me, like in terms of whatever their belief is, you know, they feel comfortable to say that and that I won't judge them uh, and that I like truly listen to what they have to say. And so I would say that is a superpower because I help make people feel heard uh, and comfortable, which is cool. I think, uh, and that allows me to connect with any kind of person. So I think that's like a really a big superpower of mine as well. I have friends who are, you know, like 60 years old and 40 years old and like friends from all walks of life. Like really people, when I'm with like friends of mine and they see the way I talk to like random people and they're like, how do you connect with this person? Like, how's that possible? But for me, I always am just able to connect with people in a way and find something to connect with on, um, which I really like about myself. So that's one thing. And the second thing is that I hit a point where I really do believe in myself. And that's like 
like really awesome too. I think that not many people do believe in themselves. Um, but yeah, I really think that like, if I want to be president one day, like, let's go, you know, like, let's do it. And so, so yeah, I think like, that's also a superpower of mine that I, I believe in myself and, and then I'm okay with like being hurt sometimes. I think that, you know, like if it, it, if it's hard, that's fine with me. Like I'm okay with a little pain, you know, I'm okay if it hurts. Um, I'm up for the challenge. So, so yeah. I love it. I love it. Those are so, all three of those. I love those. Those are amazing. And I think everyone should, we should strive to, to have that right. Belief in ourselves, being able to listen and hear others. It's incredible. Miriam, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. I've absolutely loved it. This is one of the most incredible conversations. So fascinating. Your story and your journey and how you are, who you are today is so, you know, incredible going back from when you were just a little girl asking, asking the why. So thank you for coming on the show. I've loved it. And yes. Thanks for having me. Great, great question. So I'm really glad we got to do this. Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. If you enjoyed, please spread the word. Tell someone about She Leads or post about it on social media and tag us. If you want to contact us, feel free to send over a message through the She Leads Instagram page at sheleads.show. If you want to follow us on Twitter, our account is at sheleadsshow and mine is at Carly Malatsky. This episode was produced and edited by Nick Fershow. Thank you also to our partner, Floodgate. If you're passionate about startups and want to learn more about the starting journey of those who have built groundbreaking companies, I highly recommend listening to Starting Greatness with Mike Maples Jr., the founding partner of Floodgate. He has an incredible show that, in my opinion, is definitely worth your time. Thanks again.